a long, quite scandalous chapter of Genesis. Father in heaven, we know that your word is living and active, that it is sharp, it pierces our hearts, and that it communicates your love and truth about who you are, and it reveals to us your son, Jesus Christ. We know this is true. And so when we look at Genesis 38 this morning, this is what we cling to. We want to meet Christ, and so help us. In his name we pray. Amen. According to the Academy, to innovate human resources, transformation, transformation, we'll hear that word a lot this morning, transformation is necessary when a community or organization, quote, recognizes its current culture is misaligned with its vision, mission, core values, and strategic objectives, end quote. In this case, if there's a misalignment on who you are but who you should be in their mind, there needs to be a transformation, a dramatic change, so that we can realign the culture to its vision, mission, core values, and objectives. Humanity in the world lives in a constant tension where individuals, communities, cities, schools, we know that there needs to be change. There needs to be change. We have this innate sense within us that our Creator has given us that the world is not as it should be. But lost in sin and without the knowledge of God, humanity has no idea what, the, what our vision should be, what our objectives are, what our mission. Why are we alive? What is our purpose? What should be our core values? In Christ, we know, hopefully we know this, the proper vision for humanity is found in Revelation 7-9 where all nations are gathered under the throne of King Jesus to worship God. That's a good vision for your life. It's painted on this painting over here. We know that our mission in life is to bear the good news of the gospel so that all people would reach repentance and be saved and should not perish, as we heard in our reading, opening, our opening scripture reading. We know our core values are found in the person of Jesus. You want to know what values should guide your life? We look to Jesus. Things like humility, servanthood, love, and sacrifice, and grace, and hospitality. These are our core values as well. And finally, we know what our objective is. It is to live in the presence of God and to bear the presence of Jesus into the world such that families and churches and communities would be transformed by the power of God. But without saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, as I said, humanity is confused about what it means to be human. What our vision for life should be or flourishing. What our mission, why are we here, core values, what are those things that should guide us? What are we trying to achieve? Instead of seeking to glorify the Creator and find life in His presence, humanity imagines all kinds of purposes for life. I don't need to spell them out for you. At its very worst, and then if the world is not aligned with what an individual human thinks is important, 
they will, they will try to bring change so that it aligns with what they believe is the goal of humanity. At its worst, humanity seeks to change the world by things like war or genocide. So they can have the world they think they should have. Today, much of humanity is committed to transforming the world, transforming cultures and governments and communities into a haven for individualistic godhood. That we need a world where everyone is free to express whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want, and so the world is seeking a transformation in that direction. But when men and women in sin seek to transform the world, they lead the world from one degree of brokenness to another, from one degree of death to another, from one degree of oppression to another as the world revolves in this endless cycle of sin. But we in Christ, though, we know the power of the gospel to bring genuine, joyful, Build purpose-giving transformation to our lives. Romans 12.1 is one verse you could look at. Or think of Ephesians 2, made into a new humanity. We are being transformed from broken humanity into a whole new humanity, from one degree of life to another, from one degree of holiness to another, from one degree of wholeness to another. And we have this good news in a world that knows Things are not as they should be. There needs to be change. We have the good news that true transformation can happen such that we know God and we know who we are supposed to be. Today in our passage, we learn that this type of gospel transformation I'm talking about has a very specific beginning. So if you take notes, what we're hunting for this morning is the beginning of this type of gospel transformation. Where do we start if we want to see a gospel awakening in our little church plant? If we want to see a transformation in our marriages and in our families, such that we move further from death and closer to life, further from the world and closer to God, where do we begin if we want to see, how about, this is a, a popular word today, revival in Maricopa. What is the beginning? We need to find it and start there. This morning, the chapter has been read for us by Jonah, and I am not going to read every single verse. We'll just summarize the bits that we read together. We're looking at Judah this morning, the fourth son of Jacob, who had just sold his brother into slavery. You remember how the last chapter ends? Joseph is on his way to Egypt and lands in Egypt. So, husbands, have you ever been driving somewhere and you feel pretty confident you know where you're going? And so you don't pull up the map, you don't pull up the GPS, but your wife, she knows maybe he's not as confident as he should be. So, honey, why don't you just pull up the map so we don't get lost? But as I said, you're pretty confident you know where you're going. Plus, you like the game to see if you can figure out where you're going. And often, inevitably, you get turned around and you head the wrong direction, you make a wrong turn, and in front of your wife, you have to say, Siri, how do I get where I'm supposed to be going? And your wife loves you, so she doesn't say anything, but she is thinking, I told you so. 
What we see in verses 1 to 6, it's broken up in sections in your liturgy there. In those first six verses, is Judah saying to the covenant family and to the covenant God, I know you have a map for where I should be going, but I actually think I can get where I want to go by myself. And he actually leaves the covenant family. He leaves them behind. Verse 1 says, Judah went down from his brothers. He turned aside from the covenant family. Instead of staying with them, Judah strikes out on his own. It also says in verse 1, he turned aside. He turned aside from them to a, an Adulamite, a guy named Hira, who becomes a pal of his. So he's tying himself to people outside of the covenant family with this friend, but we'll see it gets worse. So God has also shown to the Israelites, it is better to take wives from within the covenant boundaries. They've gone to Haran to find wives before. And they're called to do this so that the threat of idol worship would be mitigated. There's less threat to worship false gods when you're marrying a wife who wants to know the true God. We're taught that in the New Testament as well. But in verse 2, Judah, it says, saw the daughter of a certain, what? Do you see that in verse 2? Canaanite. Ah, Judah. And he saw her. And then it says in verse 2, he took her and went into her. Now, in Hebrew, usually this word took is what we would use for marriage. You took her as a wife. But with the phrase, he took her and went into her, it's actually kind of as graphic as the Hebrew gets. And it gives us this idea where he's filled with a passion for her, like maybe even a lustful passion. He just sees this woman and says, I want this experience. In fact, all we know about his relationship with the Canaanite woman, what's her name? Does it tell us? We don't even know her name. And all we know is their intimate experience, the three sons that they bear together. Her dad is Shua, but we don't know her name. It's quite different than what we learn about, let's say, Sarah or Rachel or Rebecca. We know nothing about this woman except he saw her and took her and went into her. They had three children, Ur, Onan, and Shelah in that order. And so here in this passage, in verses 1 through 6, we are introduced to these main characters, and one of them is Tamar, this wife of the oldest son. Tamar is a Canaanite of Canaanite descent, the language, and it means palm tree, palm tree. So we've got Tamar and Judah will be the main characters. We have three sons, and the situation is Judah has left the covenant family. He's in Kezeb, and he's tying the family to an Adulamite and two Canaanites. What's going to happen? Next, he's, he's following his own path. He's left God's wisdom behind. Then we come to verses 7 to 11. In verses 7 to 11, we learn a little bit about what's going on in the family and what happens to Judah's children. In verses 7 through 11 specifically, we find out that Ur and Onan are wicked. That's what verse 7 says. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked 
in the sight of the Lord. Verse 10 will tell us Onan was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And we'll talk about in just a moment why Onan was considered wicked. It doesn't tell us why Ur is called wicked. Just he is, and so he's put to death by the Lord. This is the first time in Scripture the Lord puts to death an individual. An individual. But if we look in Genesis, that word wicked in verse 7, it's used in Genesis and some other places. For example, in Genesis 6, that word wicked describes the state of the world, the state of humanity just before the flood. And it's that wickedness that God judges by the flood. In Genesis 13, you've heard of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Guess how they're described? Wicked in the sight of the Lord, and they are judged. So when we look at this wickedness in other passages in Genesis, we get this idea that perhaps Ur, like the Sodom and Gomorrahites, and like those before the flood, had totally rejected and made a committed effort to reject God's will in their lives, this wickedness. He's judged, put to death. So Judah is down a son. Tamar is down a first husband. She loses her first husband. So following the customs of the day, this picks up in verse 9 or or verse 8. Judah goes to Onan. Hey, son, your your brother has passed away. Now his widow, she needs a son. This is important. She needs a child, specifically to carry on the Ur lineage. And so following the customs of the day, and even eventually the law in Deuteronomy, Judah goes to his secondborn son. You need to give, uh, let's, I'll try to be, you need to give Tamar a son for Ur. And if he does this, the child born would be Ur's son. It would be as if, that's a great name, as if Ur gave a child to Tamar. You get that? It would be a continuation of his lineage. But Onan is selfish. The text tells us he knows that the child born from from Tamar in this way would not be his. So if the inheritance comes from his father, it first has to go to the Ur family and then to him. But he's thinking if Ur is gone, I get the inheritance. And so he tells his dad, okay, let's do the thing. And he tells Tamar, okay, I agree. But then what happens is, listen, in graphic terms, He takes advantage of Tamar for his own pleasure. And the Hebrew is as if it's happening over and over again without being a man of his word, withholding what he promised to the widow, Tamar. That's what's going on. And in Deuteronomy 25, we find out for a brother-in-law to refuse this obligation is very shameful. In fact, if you want later, you could look at Deuteronomy 5 to 10. If the brother-in-law says no or refuses to do that, he is supposed to be brought in front of the whole tribe and the widow is supposed to spit on him as a sign of, and take his shoes off. I don't know why, but it's this like, you can't do this. You have to do what you've said you would do. And when the Lord sees it, he sees wickedness. This lying and this pleasure-seeking man, he judges him and puts him to death. 
What's most alarming about Judah here is look down at verse 11 with me. After all of this happens to poor Tamar, she's been taken advantage of. Both of her husbands are wicked and vile. Now they're both dead. Here's what it says. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house. He actually should take her into his home and care for her. But he says, go to your father's house till Sheila, that's his third-born son, my son grows up. Why? For he feared that he would die like his brothers. Judah raised two vile and wicked children with his Canaanite wife. And when they died in their wickedness, Judah thought it was something Tamar is doing. He feared if Sheila actually ends up with this Canaanite woman, he will die too. He is oblivious to the wickedness in his family. Do you get that? He actually thinks it's Tamar is the issue. So he promises Sheila to Tamar, but we're going to find out he never intended to actually give the third-born son to Tamar. Then we get to verses 12 to 19. And this scandal between father Judah and daughter-in-law Tamar. In verse 12, it tells us, we read this, after a certain amount of time, after some time had passed, that is, after she, enough time passed for Sheila to grow up. We find out in verse 14, he's all grown up. He's ready to be married. So after that time, the Canaanite wife dies, and Judah goes to find the sheep and to shear the sheep. As he's going to Timnah, to where his sheep are kept, Children, this is your coloring page, shows this. Him moving towards Timnah to shear the sheep. They're in your coloring page. Tamar finds out in verse 13. She finds out. She's told, hey, your father-in-law, he's going. She also learns, hey, that guy that he promised would marry you, he's all grown up now. And guess what? He's not your husband. So she finds out that Judah is not going to keep his word and that she will be a forever engaged widow. She'll be alone forever. She's engaged, so she can't marry anybody else. She's a widow, but he's never going to marry her son to her. That's what she finds out. So verse 14, Tamar changes clothes. She takes off the mourning clothes and puts on something a bit more attractive. She veils herself so that Judah would not know who she is. And then she positions herself on the road to Timnah in such a way that Judah would think that she is a prostitute. Why? Well, perhaps she knows Judah's reputation as being driven by lustful passion. And she wants to make sure that she is given children by the Judah family, even if it means seducing Judah himself. That's what's going on. It works. In verse 15, Judah sees her and he thinks, huh, a prostitute. And he goes to her and in verse 16, it says, if you look at verse 16, he turned to the roadside and said, come, let me go into you. Not very romantic, you know, just right to the point of what Judah is interested in having. 
So the, the ruse works. Tamar is, Judah thinks that she is what she's trying to pretend to be. Come, let me go into you. He names a price. It's going to be a goat, hefty price for what he wants. And then Tamar, she says, you know what? You'd have to go get that. So I want a pledge, a pledge that you'll come back. If you have ever shopped at Aldi, the grocery store, they require you to give a pledge that you will return your cart. You have to take a hard-earned quarter, stick it in the cart, and then it's released. But if you want your quarterback, you have to make good on your promise that you'll return the cart. That's how they keep costs so low, is that you'll return the cart and you get your quarterback. So Judah here, or Tamar says, you know what? Give me a quarter, and when you come back, I'll give it back to you. But it's more than just a quarter, right? She asked for a signet, a, the cord, and the staff. And children, if you look on your coloring sheet, that Judah is wearing a signet with the cord around it, and he's holding his staff. So the idea is Judah can't have those. It's like, give me your license, and you can have this back when, I'll give your license back when I can have this back. It's significant what Tamar asks for. The cord, the signet, and the staff. The signet was a seal, like a stamp. Our our bishop has a seal that he wears on his ring, and when you're ordained, he stamps his seal on there saying, this is me, and it's unique to him. And that's the same thing for the signet here. Judah, his seal has a lion's head on it. I don't know if that's true, but it makes sense, right? The Lion of Judah. But anyhow, it's unique to him. It's only his. It marks it. Everybody would know this belongs to Judah. It's actually something he'd wear around his neck. Okay? And the staff is just as important. The staff was also unique to the individual. According to archaeology, we've dug up staffs from this time in this place. Their seal would be pressed into that staff, or at the very least, their name was written on the staff. So Judah, he's got a staff that says, this belongs to Judah. Tamar says, I want all of those things that identify you. Give them to me, and that's what I'll return to you when you bring me the goat. Throughout scripture, the staff is a symbol of authority. And it's often translated, especially in the prophets, as scepter. Scepter. So he, Judah gives this up, these things that identify him. He gives up his seal, his staff, to engage in this sexual immorality. And although he doesn't know it, verse, uh, verse 16 tells us, with his daughter-in-law. Hence the veil. He doesn't know. Here Judah is cast as a pleasure-seeking individual. Walking to shear sheep. That's, what he's, that's his business He sees this prostitute and he wants her. He has no idea who she is and it doesn't even matter. He doesn't care. He's willing to pay a hefty price to get what he wants and he gives up these very valuable personal items to have it. You know, I was thinking sin has a way of doing this to each of us. When temptation is not resisted, It roots itself deep in us, into our hearts. It gets into our minds. It begins to distort our desires. And it becomes challenging to resist the temptation. And then we become willing to give up different things to have the sin that is tempting us. We risk a lot. We risk our character. We risk our influence. We are willing to risk um, things like our 
our time and energy, money and resources, our relationships, our closeness with God, we risk these things to get the sin that is beckoning us. So I was wondering if Ur and Onan were wicked, surely Judah was not far behind. You might be thinking about Tamar. Wait, what about her and her disguise and her ruse? Let's leave comment for Tamar for just a little bit. Verses 20 to 23 now. Here's what happens. Hira, his friend, is sent to make good on the payment. Here's the goat. You got to go pay Tamar. And he goes there and she's nowhere to be found. She's disappeared. And so he asks around, where is the cult prostitute? Now, that Victor Hamilton, a brilliant Old Testament theologian, he says, this is, they didn't actually think she was a cult prostitute, but that would be, he says, the polite way of talking about her. Because if she was cultic, then her occupation is upstanding. It's actually necessary. It's, it's not a negative. But J- J- Judah is concerned about his reputation. In verse 23, it says, let her keep the things of her own or we're going to be laughed at. So if he was engaging with a cult woman, nobody would laugh at him. That's how you worship these false gods. But to be tricked by a woman on the side of the street, that's a reputation killer. And perhaps he would be laughed at. The mess here is getting thicker and thicker for Judah. He's made a terrible decision, and now he's trying to cover his tracks. He needs those things back. When he can't find them, he says, you know what? Let's just hope this goes away and never comes back to haunt me. Just forget about it. And he hopes that it will be forgotten. He's concerned about his reputation here. Then let's pick up in verse 24. We'll read these verses. Is everyone with me? You've tracked through the story with me. You've got an idea of what's going on, how terrible it is. Anything left un, you're confused about? Verse, maybe you are. <laughs> let's try to clear it up. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. And the word is actually the same word we've already read, prostitute. That's the word. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. That is, by prostitution. That's the word. Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law. By, this, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah said, uh-oh, and identified them. He identified them. Tamar has played her cards well here. She has been left to waste away in her father's house, all the while pledged to a member of Judah's family and the covenant family of God. She desires those. She actually wants to be brought into the story. She wants them to make good on, her promise, on their promises, even through their evil and corruption and their lies and their passions. She wants a child by the Judah family. So she disguises herself and entices Judah so she can be brought into the family. And she conceives, it tells us, that she conceived. But three months later, that tummy is starting to show under the mourning clothes, the widow clothes. 
Word about the scandal, the immorality gets to Judah. And he says he's in charge of her because she is pledged to his family. He has authority over her. And he says, if you take notes, quite hypocritically, who would do such a thing? Who would engage in this prostitution? How could this happen? Burn her. You feel the hypocrite right there. Tamar, though, has a signet cord and staff up her sleeve. And she sends them to Judah. Hey, Judah, identify these, and then you will know what's going on here. Suddenly, the wicked Judah is confronted with his sin, the shame of his decision, the lies, the the withholding of his son that he promised. He has been found out. Look what happens back in verse 26. He said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila, and he did not know her again. Hebrew scholar Bruce Walkie, he tells us it's better to translate this just, she's right, not I. She's in the right. Judah confesses, I was wrong. I lied. I didn't give Tamar my son like I promised. I went after this pleasure in a corrupted way. And so now my daughter-in-law is bearing my own son when it should be Sheila's son. That's what he acknowledges in this confession. The word righteous in our ESV is only used in Genesis one more time, Genesis 44, the specific word. And it's meant there, cleared of wrongdoing. We'll read it in a couple weeks. So he says, Tamar is cleared of any wrongdoing. It's used in 1 Kings about a moment when someone who has been wronged has vindication. It's like, she is in the right, not me. So we start thinking of someone like, how about Esther, who took advantage of a king to save the people of Israel? Or how about Rahab? This is a good, another example, who lied to her people because she feared God. So here what Tamar, what's going on with Tamar is we might call it a faithful deception or a, what did I say? A righteous scandal or a necessary exchange. That's what's happening here. She had been promised to the Israelites and even in their wickedness, even in their lies, she was committed to tying herself to the family. If you read Israelite, like Judaic writings, she is seen as a heroine, Tamar is. She's cast in a positive light. She is right, not I. That's what Judah says. It's a bit startling. So here, though, in Judah, we have a confession. I was wrong. We see repentance. Judah turns from his passion. He will not know her again. He knows what he did was wrong. He won't do it again. And then the story concludes with Kimmy said, it sounds like a painful labor with one baby coming halfway out and then coming back in, the other baby fighting for position and bursting out. The Hebrew is, what a breach you have breached for yourself. Like he like burst through, you can imagine with no pain medicines, how painful this was. And they're born Perez and Zerhath, Judah's sons by his daughter-in-law. What a crazy story in the middle of the Joseph narrative. I thought, you know, you think of Joseph in Genesis and how it's the end of Genesis and you often forget Judah right in the middle and Tamar. Why is it here? Why the shift from Joseph, who we're going to pick up with Bishop Ken next Sunday, to Judah right here? 
because, listen, God is going to use Judah in a mighty way to rescue the Israelites. But before that happens, Judah needs to be transformed. Judah is a mess. He sells his brother into slavery, lies to his father, abandons his family. Driven by passion and lust, he marries a Canaanite woman. He fails as a father, raising two evil children, lies to his daughter-in-law, sends her to her father's house instead of caring for her as he should. He commits fornication and adultery, gives up his symbol of authority, and hypocritically condemns a woman to death. That's what we see in Genesis 38. Why was he spared? How could God use such a mess like him? And so I think about my own life. Why am I spared? How could God use such a mess like me? It all hinges on verse 26 when Judah acknowledges his wickedness, he confesses his sin. And he turns from his sin in repentance. So remember, we began, where is, where is the beginning of transformation? Gospel transformation. Here it is. Personal confession of sin and repentance. At a personal level, confessing our wrongs and turning from them. That is the beginning of gospel Transformation. Let me show you real quickly. We have to note that Judah, in chapter 38, is in Kezib for about 20 to 21 years. And all that while, Joseph is growing up in Egypt. He's living in Egypt. We're going to learn about what was going on in his life as well. And if the timelines line up as they seem to in Genesis... After this chapter, the very next scene in Judah's life, it's almost like he confesses and repents, and then what happens is the famine strikes the land. Genesis 43 and 44. And instead of staying in Kezeb, he moves back toward the family of God. And he is chosen by Jacob. Judah is chosen by Jacob in Genesis 43 to be the leader of the family, not Reuben, not Simeon, not Levi, but Judah is chosen to help Israel get safely into Egypt. He is chosen. And then in Genesis 44, they're before Joseph. All the brothers are before Joseph. And they fall down before him. And it is Judah who speaks up. Because Joseph says, I want Benjamin. Do you guys know the story a little bit? I want Benjamin. But Judah says he doesn't want wickedness to find his family. Same word. He doesn't want wickedness to find his family again. So it's Judah who says, I will sacrifice myself for Benjamin. That's what happens in Judah's life after he confesses and repents of his sins. He is led to the path that God has for him. So that God can work through his life. And then in the end, it is Judah, not Joseph, not Reuben, who receives the promise of royalty from Jacob. We talked about last week, Joseph did assume this royal figure for the safety of Israel. They will bow before him. But Judah is promised that the king will come to him. Genesis 49. 
It says, from you a king will come who will never put down his scepter. He will rule forever. It was Judah who laid down his staff for sin. But the promised child from Judah would not put down the staff no matter what. It's also said in Genesis 49 to Judah, this child will be Israel's obedience. The one who's so immoral in Genesis 38 is promised that one will be born from him who the whole world could look at and say, I need his obedience. That's the promise made to broken but confessing and repenting Judah. And it all hinges here on his confession and repentance. Jubilees is a Jewish writing from the intertestamental period. And what they say about Judah in that book, what the Hebrews said, is so beautiful that in this moment, it wasn't that Judah was just like, oh yeah, I was wrong. He's, they actually say he turned to God and he confessed his transgressions to God and was restored by God. Now that's extra biblical writing, but we can see how that, they got that interpretation. If we want to see radical, life-giving, gospel-infused, purpose-fulfilling, joy-filled transformation such that we can step out of wickedness, out of the clutches of Satan, and into the path of God in our church and in our families, in the city, it must begin with personal confession and repentance. This is where humanity meets God. Judah's wickedness is spelled out in detail. Give me just a couple more minutes. Onan and Ur are both described as wicked. They're put to death. But do you know, Genesis 8, 21, after the flood, God says, I will never again curse the ground as I did. For I know man, and the intention of his heart is evil from youth. And that word evil is the same word describing Ur and Onan. Thus, from the very mouth of God, we learn that in our fallen nature, we are wicked. This is the doctrine of depravity. And it doesn't mean that we're all as evil as we could possibly be. But it does mean we are all destined for judgment for our evilness and our wickedness. Our turning from God's love. Our turning from God's care. Our turning from his purpose and plan for our life. Thus we are to faith's death. But Judah is spared. And the thing that marks him out in this passage is his confession and his repentance. And then he is promised the king. We must confess our sin, stop hiding our wickedness, and turn from the paths of death toward God. This is where transformation happens. This is where deadly habits are exchanged for life-giving habits. This is where sinfulness is exchanged for holiness. This is where churches stop being alleys that hide sin in the shadows and become cities of light that nail sin to the cross. It's here in our personal confession and repentance. When we turn from the schemes of the enemy, we embrace the path of God through our confession and repentance because, listen church, because there is redemption. There's going to be, there is redemption. So this is actually the key then. Transformation is possible because redemption is available. See, if we confessed our sins and turned from them, but there was no redemption, sure, maybe we'd leave more holy lives or whatever, but our sin would still have amassed a debt that we could not afford to pay. 
So praise be to God that the confessing repenter Judah bore a royal son generations later who would provide the redemption that his earthly fathers need and that you and I and that this world needs. Matthew begins his gospel, his good news of the royal son. How? A genealogy. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And it goes on with Perez. We see several startling names here. Tamar the Canaanite who acted the prostitute and her children by her father-in-law in Jesus' genealogy. Tamar has a place in the story. Judah has a place in the story because of his repentance and confession. From Perez would come Jesse. From Jesse would come David. From David would come Solomon. From Solomon would come the son of Judah, the son of God, King Jesus. Jesus is born into this lineage of broken sinners and scandalous stories. You know, every woman, there's four women in the genealogy. All of them are part of the story through a scandal. We can see that with Tamar, a Canaanite, acting a prostitute. It's scandalous, but even with Mary, a virgin, betrothed, but with a child, it's scandalous. But into the story comes the Son of God, born of the Holy Spirit. Jesus enters the world that is filled with wickedness, but from his youth possesses no evil in his heart. He walks in this world without sin, When tempted to the fullest extent, as we read this morning, Jesus tells Satan, I know who I am, and I will not let the scepter fall from my hand. Page, shh. Jesus lived this perfect obedience that was promised to Judah. And though he had no reason to repent, though he had no sin to confess, though he did not deserve death, in a scandal of grace... Jesus took our place on the cross to offer us redemption. As this necessary exchange, he took in himself our confessed and repented sins. He was forsaken by the Father because we have forsaken the Father. So that in his blood, by faith in his cross work, we might be redeemed. And so by faith in King Jesus, we are made into this transformed humanity, almost like Judah, taken from the paths of the enemy and put on the path of God. Filled with the Spirit of God, walking with the risen Christ, and we are empowered. Listen, last sentence. We are empowered by the God who loves us by the God who redeems us, by the God who calls us to confession. We are empowered to live out this vision to worship, this mission to bear the gospel into humanity with things like sacrifice and joy and to see the gospel, the good news of King Jesus, transform cities and churches and families as men and women and children encounter God through confession and repentance, looking to Jesus who wins our redemption. Would you pray with me? Father, You have said, 
that from our youth, our hearts are evil. As Romans, what we read in Romans this morning, through the one man's transgression, we are all guilty. We need to be transformed. To turn from our sin and be renewed in your likeness. Give us courage this morning by your Holy Spirit with the assurance that the cross has finished our redemption. Give us the courage to be honest and open about our sins. Give us the strength to repent from them. Not in perfection, Lord, for Jesus is our obedience, but in genuineness and a commitment to follow you. Help us repent. And so we pray that in our church there would be this transformation work and that you would equip us to carry the good news of the gospel into a world that needs change but can only find the change we need in Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen.